This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. CSU Police, this is Ginger. Campus police at Colorado State University got a phone call the other day. It was from a woman touring the school with her son and husband. She was calling about some other kids in the group. There are two um, young men that joined our tour that weren't a part of our tour, and their behavior is just really odd. They won't give their names, and they're just wearing, like, very, uh, they just really stand out. Several times in the call, the woman seems to hesitate, saying she might just be paranoid. Eventually, officers caught up with the tour and took the boys aside for questioning. A body camera recorded the conversation. Yeah, people were just worried because you guys were just real quiet and didn't answer any of their questions, and they don't know who you were because you didn't, yeah. didn't show up with parents yeah. or any of that stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. The officers asked the boys for ID and proof they were signed up for the tour, which they provided. And when the officers let the boys go, it was too late to catch up with the tour, so they left. As you may know by now, this has become national news. The two were brothers from New Mexico. They are American Indian. And the incident, for which CSU has apologized, prompts us to ask some bigger questions. What are Native Americans up against if and when they get to college? Cheryl Crazy Bull is president of the American Indian College Fund based in Denver. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I'm glad to be here with you. You raise scholarship money for Native Americans, and very few enter college or graduate, you say, because of some unique challenges. Pretty startling statistic. Just 13% of American Indians and Alaska Natives earn a college degree compared to around 30% of Americans generally. What stops these students from attending college in the first place? Oh, Ryan, you know, I think there are two um, really significant barriers. Um, One of them is that a lot of our students don't have any experience. A lot of our young people don't have any experience with college, so they don't see it as an option. They are first generation if they go to college. Yes, they are. So that behavior hasn't been modeled for them. It hasn't been modeled, and it often is inaccessible, um, besides not having access to models. That is to say it's too expensive or what? Well, I think it's uh, transportation, um, it's distance, uh, tribal college and universities, which the College Fund works with, are a good model of a place-based institution. But for most of our students, those institutions are not accessible either. Okay. There are tribal colleges, uh, institutions of higher education. How do those change the equation? How do they fit in? Uh, against a backdrop of other institutions of higher education. So I think they address the uh, other barrier that I think our students, our young people experience. Uh, They address the issue of institutionalized invisibility. So many American Indian Alaska Native students uh, end up in institutions where there is nothing that they can reference that tells them that they're valued or that uh, the curriculum has anything to do with them. Um, I think that's part of the experience that these young men had at at CSU. But tribal colleges are places where Native people go to school with other Native people. Now, we don't have any pure tribal colleges in Colorado. Is that correct? We don't have any tribally chartered institutions in Colorado, although we do have institutions where there are a number of Native students. Indeed. I think of Fort Lewis, for instance. Yes. You you talked about transportation, about distance being an issue. Will you say more about that? Yeah. So the majority of American Indians uh, live in environments where they can't readily access a post-secondary education. Even though many Native people live in urban areas, they don't have the income or 
or the access to the resources to go to college. But a lot of the people we work with, they live in rural and reservation communities, and that makes it harder for them to access institutions. These two boys apparently drove themselves from New Mexico to CSU. Their mother says they used their own money, and it was one of their first big road trips. Are, Are there examples of efforts to go to where American Indians live and recruit them. We know that that happens for aspiring sports stars in high school, you know, that Mm -hmm. colleges go to seek them out. Yeah, there are organizations, including the College Fund, that are doing that. The College Fund has a program called uh, Pathways, College Pathways, where we go to uh, tribal high schools and uh, try to create a college-going culture and help students see the opportunity for them to find an institution that fits their interests and is accessible to them. Should there be more of that? There should be more of that. I think colleges and universities can themselves uh, create those same kinds of pathways like we've created. I want to go back to what we heard in the 911 tape. Uh, or I'm, not, I'm not sure if she actually called 911, if it was a non-emergency number, but uh, the, the police call tape. Their behavior is odd. Uh, this is a delicate question, but are there ways in which white people simply misinterpret the behavior of American Indian people? Yes, there are. Um, I think that Oftentimes, uh, Native people—I don't want to stereotype yeah, Native people, exactly. right? So this I, is right. the concern that I have. Yeah, I, yeah. I looked at these young boys. They look like typical teenagers to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they were not responsive to this person, I think, s- speaks to a bigger issue around what is the space that, in quotes, the other is allowed to go into. And in this case, the other was young men of color. Um, But I don't necessarily think that the fact that they were reserved around her is stereotypically Native, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm I'm concerned about being cautious about that. All right. And and, uh, I'm aware of of that concern. I want to be sensitive to it. Um, I want to say that we reached out to a young man named Joaquin Gallegos. He's a law student at the University of Denver. And we were interested in the Native experience on a campus. He says... People are often intrigued by his background because many have never knowingly encountered an American Indian or Alaskan Native. That can be positive because it's a teaching experience, which can also be exhausting and frustrating at times, but positive in that you can shape people's perceptions of what a current modern-day Indian is and and does. Gaigo says sometimes he feels like he has to represent all Native people. When, you know, really tribes, nations are very diverse. Uh, Have you heard about that kind of experience before? Oh, I've experienced that. Uh, So I think one of the things that um, many people don't realize is that this experience at CSU was not not unique. It did not surprise any American Indian or Alaska Native person in this country that those young men experienced that kind of interactions, both with the institution and with... um, this person. Uh, I experienced this 40 years ago when I was in college, and I think it really speaks to the lack of uh, adequate education in this country about American Indian Alaska Native peoples, that people would view an individual Indian as being representative of very diverse uh, groups of people, that they would view us as exotic, 
or being able to speak for everyone. So, no, this is a very common experience. Same thing happened with my children, and I'm sure it's happening with my grandchildren. Okay, so you're seeing this repeated over the generations. Uh, I'll say that Gallegos says he ended up in college because he went to a college fair knowing there'd be food there because his family didn't have enough money to buy food. It was uh, part of his experience. He says one issue he faces now is that his fellow students thinks he has advantages because of his minority status. In a hyper-competitive environment like law school or medical school, I feel that often ideas of Native students are undervalued or not taken as seriously because there can be a feeling that the only reason you're there is to fill a so-called diversity need and not because of your individual talent or capacity. Gallego says he has had fellow students tell him this directly. How often do you hear that concern from Native students? I think that that's a common concern that Native students have. I think there are misperceptions that American Indians, Alaska Natives go to school for free, which is not true, or that they have access to some kind of advantage um, in order to get admitted into any kind of professional opportunity. Um, That's certainly not true, or there would be more students you know, in colleges or in these graduate programs or in law school like Hoquin is. I want to ask about retention. So once a student gets to a campus, uh, an American Indian student, what are ways that colleges and universities can ensure that they stay? Colleges and universities have to invest in Native students in order to have them stay. They have to provide um, support services. They might have to provide services that bring a student into college readiness. You know, perhaps the student didn't have enough access in high school, for example, to the kind of skills that would make them successful in college. Um, I think they have to provide a opportunity for students to see that they're valued for their identity. Uh, Many institutions have no representation of American Indians or Alaska Native students in their faculty, or if they do, it's very isolated. Students need to be able to see that as well. They need to see themselves in some ways in that campus. Is that what I hear you saying? They do need to see themselves, and they need to see other people of color because that um, is kind of a universal sharing that we can have with other people. Who has done this well? Oh, you know, I think that um, CSU has done some of it well. Hmm. Uh, CSU has a number of um, Native faculty and staff. Um, They do have a very small group of Native students, but those um, Native students appear to really enjoy their experience there. Um, There are other colleges and universities across the country that are what we would call predominantly white institutions or mainstream institutions like Arizona State University, South Dakota State, um, the University of New Mexico, who've done a lot of really good work in this area. I want to go back to one more point from Joaquin Gallegos, again, who's at the University of Denver in law school there. And and just to point out that the boys who were stopped at at CSU had longish hair. Gallegos had an experience that made him feel that uh, he might have been singled out because of his looks. I had my hair long to shoulder length for a number of years. Ultimately, I cut it for personal reasons that didn't have to do with how other people viewed it. But in doing so, I did experience some interesting um, encounters. Just my peers who respect and even within the legal community commented that 
now I look more professional and now I can be taken more seriously, which was so interesting to me because I didn't think I was not taken seriously or that I was not capable because of my hair. Cheryl Crazy Bull from the American Indian College Fund. I'm curious what you make of that. Well, it's disappointing to me. Um, I think that American Indian Alaska Native peoples today come in all um, forms. People have different appearances um, depending on their heritage. You know, they may be light-skinned. I think that the experience that he had really demonstrates how much stereotypes still permeate American society and how critical it is for institutions, including higher education institutions, to step up to change that. So CSU indeed apologized and said people of all races, genders, heritages are welcome. The president, Tony Frank, issued a statement, and here's part of it, quote, it seems to me that we can all examine our conscience about the times in our own lives when we've crossed the street, avoided eye contact, or walked a little faster because we were concerned about the appearance of someone we didn't know, but who was different from us. He then went on to say that includes himself, a, quote, white man in a position of authority. I do want to push back, though, a little. I mean, high-profile attacks on schools have made people hypervigilant, I think. Put yourself in the shoes of a parent who thinks, hmm, there's something a little off. I mean, can you understand why a parent might make that call in today's environment? No. Um, I think the reason I can't understand that particular call or some of the other incidents that have emerged is because they're not really based in a reality. Um, Reality is that um, incidents of violence that are occurring in this country in those kinds of settings are perpetrated by white males. Um, So I think that the incidents that we're hearing about are really, I wonder if they're not about white people feeling like people of color are the other who don't belong in those white spaces. And I think that higher education institutions have a duty to teach people more about how to be inclusive of indigenous cultures and indigenous people. I think they need to teach people more about how to recognize racism. Those young men were very much at risk. Um, I think that the um, fact that they didn't have a uh, defensive reaction really saved them from violence being perpetrated against them. So this is a very difficult space to be in, you know, to talk about those kinds of issues. What do you hope will come out of this? I mean, I understand that you've reached out to CSU about some next Mm -hmm. steps. I have reached out to CSU, but I've issued a call to action. Um, So the American Indian College Fund provides support to students at colleges and universities all over the country, even though the majority of our support goes to tribal college students. I'd like to see an American Indian or Alaska Native student be able to go to school anywhere they want. So I've asked that institutions step up to teach more about uh, indigenous cultures, to create safer, more welcoming environments, to teach people about racism, uh, to create climates where people acknowledge that we're all living on indigenous people's lands, um, and also to share their data and information about their students, because a lot of times colleges and universities don't even know if they have Native students on campus. Huh. Thank you for being with us. I'm happy to have been here. Thank you for letting me share. Cheryl Crazy Bull is president of the Denver-based American Indian College Fund. 
which works to increase the number of American Indian graduates. We talked about the incident at CSU in which two Native American students on a campus tour were questioned by police. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They say a good compromise leaves everyone a little dissatisfied, and that appears to be the case for the plan to stabilize the state's pension system, known as PARA. More than 560,000 active and retired workers count on the fund. And before the legislature made last-minute changes last week, estimates showed PARA couldn't cover its obligations to the tune of at least $32 billion dollars. But the plan to shore it up is already under fire from teachers' unions who say it's too harsh and budget hawks who say it doesn't go far enough. What does it mean for workers, retirees, and for taxpayers? We're going to put those questions to Brian Eason of the Associated Press. Hi, Brian. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being with us. Uh, This is something of a deja vu moment because lawmakers passed a pair reform package back in 2010. And back then they said it would put the pension system on the right path. So what's different this time around? They did. I think the biggest difference this time around is that the changes are going to happen a lot faster. So in in 2010, uh, the changes, the increased contributions from the government were kind of phased in over time. And, And the problem with doing that was that the government was continuing to promise these benefits to workers, but weren't completely paying for them at, at the time. And so that's helped kind of build up this debt that we have today. Okay, so this happens uh, at a faster pace. Most Coloradans are not in para, but they support it with their tax dollars to some extent. So big picture, let's start with what this means for taxpayers. So there's not going to be a tax hike, uh, but the state basically from now until they decide to shut it off, uh, is going to be paying uh, $225 million each year to help pay off these unfunded debts. Um, and public employers, that's the state, school districts, um, a few other other entities out there. That rely on tax dollars. Uh, yes, they rely on tax dollars, are, are also going to be contributing a little bit more of, of each of their payroll to, to help shore up the system. It's about 0.25%. Okay, so that's money that otherwise might have been spent on something else. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, this is money that's um, already being collected to, to pay for public services, parks, schools, uh, state troopers. Okay. Well, those uh, more directly involved in PARA certainly have been watching this closely. And why don't we start with retirees who collect benefits as we speak, most of whom do not get Social Security. Is that right? That's right. Uh, so for retirees, they're not going to get cost of living raises for the next two years. Those are just going to be shut off completely. Uh, then after that, uh, they used to get a 2% cost of living increase. Uh, now they're going to be getting 1.5%. And, and that might not sound like a lot, but but over time, that, that really adds up with, with compounding interest. And they're going to see their, their pensions not keep up with inflation like it used to. All right. And those don't kick in, as you say, for a few years, though. Um, well, correct. They, but they will lose their cost of living increases for the next two years. Okay. If I'm a current state employee or a teacher who's about to retire, can I expect any changes? About to retire, uh, they're going to basically have the same changes that 
the retirees have and okay. that you know they're going to uh, have the cost of living cuts. Uh, they're also going to have to pay in a little bit more into the fund. Public employees, uh, their contributions are going up from, from 8% of pay to 10% of pay. And that's kind of phased in over a few years. Okay. Now, what if I am young in the workforce, I have just joined it, or I am about perhaps to become a state employee or a teacher? What changes for the youngest in para? So for the youngest, they're going to have those same contribution increases. Uh, their paychecks are going to, 10% is going to have to go into the pension. Um, uh, the other big thing, and this is for, for future employees starting in 2019, their retirement age is going to go up. So today, state workers uh, can retire at 60. Uh, teachers can retire at 58. Uh, future teachers and future state workers are going to be retiring, aren't going to be able to get their full pension until age 64. Okay. But those are n- no one currently on the workforce that would apply to. It's only for employees that join after? That's correct. Okay. There was all kinds of talk about expanding the 401k option in PARA, or at least the 401k style option employers would, would pay into more of a personal retirement fund rather than a a traditional pension. Many educators were opposed to that because they thought it would make the benefits package less attractive and and thus harder to uh, bring teachers into the profession. What happened on that front? So uh, school teachers... um, uh... They won their battle against it. The school division will not uh, will not have that option. Uh, there, there was some expansion of it, though. So uh, before, only certain state workers could get it. Now there's going to be more state workers that are eligible, uh, some higher education folks, um, also local governments, local government workers will now be eligible for that plan. Okay, eligible, but not by any means forced into that plan. That is, it's an option for them. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. One issue that came up, late in the negotiations over PARA was transparency around the investment fees it pays. This was largely in light of a piece by David Sirota in Westward. He found that PARA has paid about a billion dollars in fees to Wall Street since 2009, but says the public can't see the terms of those agreements with money managers. You are not allowed as a Colorado legislator, as a member of PARA, as a member of the general public, you are not allowed to see the contract between Para and a Wall Street firm that Para may have 100, 250, 300 million dollars in because of this sweeping secrecy rule. Did lawmakers address that point at all in the end? So th- there was a push for some more transparency. Uh, one of the challenges is I, I think I don't think we're sure how much actual transparency this will result in because there's still some exceptions for confidentiality agreements, that sort of thing. And so, you know, I think it's uh, it may fall back on para to start negotiating more transparent deals with some of these uh, some of these Wall Street outfits. Was this written into the law at all or just part of the discussions and didn't make it onto the page? It was written in, into the law. Um, uh, the language you know, basically... Uh, I'd probably term it as a suggestion more okay. than a, a requirement. <laughs> more of a, uh, is that a shall versus a will, maybe? Something <laughs> like that? Yeah. This is an election year. Uh, Pair has been an issue in the governor's race for sure, uh, in the race for treasurer. How do you see this playing out politically? 
That's a great question. I mean, uh, the current state treasurer, Walker Stapleton, is, is of course running for governor, and he, for years, has been trying to uh, sound the alarm about what uh, he sees as Paris financial problems. Um, you know, one of his potential opponents on the Democratic side, assuming they both make it through their primaries, is, is Kerry Kennedy, who was state treasurer when the last round of reforms was signed into law. Indeed. Um, I think. I think it probably would have had a bigger impact on the race had this bill not passed, frankly, because then you would have seen candidates having to answer, well, how, how would you fix it? What are you going to do about it? Exactly. Thanks for being with us. Are you rested up after the session? I know there was a late night, especially into the very end. I think so. I, okay. was, uh, I was a bit of a zombie on Thursday. But. It's Brian Eason, who has recovered from his, his zombiness. He's with the Associated Press. And we talked about an austerity package to shore up PARA, the state's pension system. Still to come, how another issue fared during the legislative session, and that is government transparency in general. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If a child dies, does the public have the right to know how? It's one of the questions the state legislature answered about government records this year, and it has raised the ire of people who fight to keep those records open. Denver media attorney Steve Zansberg is president of the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition. Zansberg, I'll note, represents CPR through the Colorado Broadcasters Association, and welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Nice to be here. Overall, would you say good news, bad news for the public's right to know in this past state legislative session? I would say overall it was a, a bad news year as, as in contrast to previous sessions. Okay. And let's talk about this bill dealing with records of children's deaths. Specifically, it would seal children's autopsy reports unless journalists got a judge to order a release. And We'll start by pointing out that uh, the legislature approved this bill, but the governor hasn't signed it yet, correct? That's correct. Okay. County coroners argued for the bill. They say family privacy should be maintained and that making details available could, if it's suicide, for instance, cause copycats. What's your response? Uh, well, uh, the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition, uh, as you mentioned, I'm the president, uh, and uh, some of its constituent uh, organizations, including the Broadcasters Association and the Colorado Press Association, are urging the governor to veto this bill. Uh, we fought against it um, because, in our view, it's a, a, a solution in search of a problem. Um, you said that it seals uh, records of autopsy reports of children, but in fact, it seals all autopsy reports uh, performed by county coroners of anyone under the age of 18 uh, up until the age of 17. And the existing statute um, already allows for, um, it, it presumes that these records are open, um, but allows a coroner in a particular case where there are particular uh, sensitive issues to go to a court and get an order authorizing withholding of the records. That happened in the Columbine uh, school shooting case. The uh, victims' autopsies were authorized to be withheld. And it happens fairly frequently in the early stages of an investigation. The county coroner for El Paso County 
El Paso County, uh, Robert Bucks, claimed that uh, releasing these reports uh, would create contagion suicides and contagion homicides. Um, but there's no evidence. Uh, there's not a single instance that was pointed to uh, to uh, substantiate any such claim. So it's really uh, a, a bill that flips the presumption of openness and requiring custodians to go to a court and, and get an order to justify withholding it. And now it places under wraps all of these public records that have proved very fruitful uh, in previous investigations that resulted in change to public systems. Why don't you expound on that? So how does the public benefit if these records are more open? Well, for example, in in 2012, uh, the Denver Post and Nine News uh, collaborated on a series of reports called Failed to Death that investigated the child welfare system in Colorado. And in relying upon autopsy reports, uh, among other records, uh, that were then open and as of now remain open, they determined that 75 out of 175 Colorado children who had uh, died in the previous uh, five years were known to the child welfare system. And that series of reports resulted in significant changes to how our state uh, protects children uh, through uh, direct care, etc. And so, it, these types of reports are, are central to helping to shed light on government operations. And that would have only been possible with access to these kinds of records? Yes, absolutely. Without these types of records, autopsy reports of minors, uh, uh, lots of information, as well as you know information about uh, the shooting of Jessica Hernandez by uh, Denver police. That was an autopsy report. Or, or John Benet Ramsey. I mean, the, the, the theory behind the bill was that it was to uh, concern about suicides, teen suicides in particular. But the bill closes all juvenile uh, autopsy reports, regardless of age and regardless of cause of death. But it sounds like you agree there are some circumstances in which having these records sealed is appropriate. Absolutely. And that's why uh, the current system works. In the early stages of a criminal investigation, it is fairly routine that coroners will um, be able to withhold an autopsy report regardless of age. This isn't limited to juveniles. Uh, with uh, Heather DeWild a number of years ago, a, a mother who was murdered, uh, that uh, autopsy report was held for withheld for 90 days in order to allow the investigation to continue. So yes, there are appropriate circumstances for withholding of individual reports. But the question is, what should the presumption be? Should they be presumptively open and require the citizens to go to court uh, and bear the cost of trying to unseal them, or should it be the current status quo, which is everything is open and cause the coroner to go to court? You obviously come to different conclusions from some in the legislature. What's the rule in other states? How does Colorado compare? Well, it turns out in in many other states, uh, autopsy reports are closed, presumptively, Ah. Um, uh, but not because of juveniles. There's just all of them are. They're considered medical records. So even if this passes and is, well, it passed, but if it's signed by the governor, Colorado would be relatively open compared to other states? Well, not uh, Colorado doesn't have that great a record uh, on transparency more broadly, but with respect to autopsy reports, it would not be an outlier. Okay. Let's talk now about an unsuccessful bill that the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition backed. Um, It dealt with internal affairs investigations of law enforcement officers. How would it have changed things? Well, uh, that was uh, House Bill 14. 
1904 uh, that Representative James Coleman introduced, and it would have required that uh, completed internal affairs files uh, of any law enforcement officer in the state, sheriff or uh, police department, would be open for public inspection after the investigation was completed. Certain uh, materials could be withheld, uh, social security numbers, bank accounts, uh, undercover uh, officers' identities, things of that sort. But it would have mandated that uh, upon the completion of an internal internal affairs investigation, the public would have access to it. That is the law in 12 states, and it is the is pretty much what is being done now in the city and county of Denver. But elsewhere, outside of the city and county of Denver, uh, a study by Denver University Law School last year uh, called Access Denied showed that um, most jurisdictions in the state withhold uh, internal affairs investigation files as a matter of course. Why is it important in your mind that the public know what happened in internal affairs investigations? Well, the the reason that there there are a number of reasons for internal affairs investigations uh, files and internal investigations of officers' conduct, but one of the primary uh, purposes is to assure the public that uh, wrongdoing will be rooted out and punished. And um, when that entire process is shielded from public view, it, it undermines public trust in, in police departments. So to take one example yeah, exactly. um, of, from the uh, DU study, in 2017, uh, Darshan uh, Kelly uh, was tased, uh, even though he had done nothing wrong uh, and fell to the ground backwards. It's a widely seen video. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, practically uh, viral. Uh, He received a $110,000 payment from the city of Aurora. The internal affairs investigation file as to the officers who tased him um, found that they had not violated department policy. And so the public and and the public uh, doesn't have access to that internal affairs file. So we're sort of left wondering why did the city pay $110,000 to this person when the department determined there was no wrongdoing? I want to step out of the legislature just a bit to talk about a recent decision by a group called the Independent Ethics Commission. It was created in the state constitution to review the conduct of state officials and, in some cases, local government employees. The commission recently closed off some of its records. Uh, Tell me just briefly about that. Well, um, the internal uh, the the Independent Ethics Commission uh, declared earlier this year that it was not subject to the Colorado Open Records Act, and so it created a, an earlier version of this rule that would have actually was far worse. Uh, and uh, they invited public comment. Uh, the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition and others um, uh, opposed the adoption of any rule because, in fact. There is a prior uh, case that finds the uh, IEC is subject to the Open Records Act. So the the more recently enacted rule um, places certain records off limits in a way that is more restrictive than the Open Records Act. It's not nearly as bad as the earlier uh, uh, rule, but still our position is there's no reason for an independent rule. And therefore, less information would be available about the conduct of state officials and perhaps some local government employees. I'll say that we reached out to the Ethics Commission. They declined to comment, saying the new rules speak for themselves. Uh, But these rules seem to deal primarily with draft reports and with things that may turn out to be frivolous. So do you think it's a big deal? 
Um, it remains to be seen whether it's a big deal. I, I frankly don't think there's going to be that much impact on change. public access. You said at the beginning of this conversation, you thought it was a bad year for transparency, for sunshine, if you will, in the legislature. Overall, what what, what does that mean for the people of this state? Well, um, the reason we have transparency is it's a uh, necessary prerequisite for accountability. And we, the people, hold our government institutions accountable by having access to the records that show what they've done uh, behind closed doors. And without that information, we can't hold public officials accountable. And past uh, uh, history teaches us that that leads to uh, distrust in the government and sometimes even corruption. Steve Zansberg, media lawyer and president of the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition, He sometimes represents CPR through the Colorado Broadcasters Association. It's an ugly time for the Denver Post. Layoffs mean the newsroom staff is down from 300 at its peak to about 60. For those who've left and those who've stayed, they're immersed in an open revolt. Last week, reporters picketed the offices of the New York hedge fund that owns the paper and at the Post's local headquarters. They demanded a change in ownership. Well, a few groups are in the early stages of deciding whether to step in and buy the paper, if that's even possible. One of those groups includes former U.S. diplomat Dan Bayer, now a visiting fellow at the University of Denver. Hi, Dan. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. The Denver Post aside, newspapers have been in deep trouble for a while. Only one in five people reads a paper often, according to the Pew Research Center. Layoffs we know are common. Prominent publications are sold, resold. And Colorado already lost one of its big dailies, the Rocky Mountain News. Why consider buying a newspaper with those facts staring at you? Well, I think I think your point is exactly right. We're going through, obviously, locally, we're seeing uh, devastation happening at something that is a local institution, the Denver Post, and something important to our community. But this is happening in a broader context where the news business, the media business, is shaking out in in different ways, in different places. But there's a major transformation going going underway right now. And I think we have kind of two questions in front of us. One is, you know, what can we do to make sure that uh, Denver and Colorado continue to have a rich, robust media environment, one that can bind us together as a community, help us hold our government accountable, give us a sense of empathy for the people we share a community with. But also there's a there's an economic question of, you know, what is what is news going to look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And and how can we use this crisis that we see unfolding at the Denver Post as a moment of opportunity to try to think about what news looks like in the future and make sure that Colorado is at the forefront. So this is some of what you are contemplating in trying to put together, I guess I could say, a bid or an offer, although it seems that the hedge fund has not been terribly interested in entertaining any of those. Uh, We'll get to more of the challenges in a moment, but let's say you went full speed ahead. What what questions would you want answered about, say, the health of the Denver Post or its future before you you actually made a transaction? Well, I think, I mean, you alluded to this, but one of the things that has come, obviously things are moving very quickly. And I think one of the, the inspiring parts of the last few weeks and months has been the way that 
in the same way that in our politics, the people are leading and the leader, leaders are following. In our journalism, the journalists are leading and the publishers are, are lagging. And, and watching the journalists and editors from the Denver Post stand up for local journalism has been really inspiring. W- one of the questions, I think, out there, and certainly there are several groups of community members who have kind of informally come together to talk about what can be done. And Indeed, yours is not the only one. Exactly. What can be done to save the post? But one of the questions is, is it even possible? Would Alden even entertain a conversation? And so far, um, we haven't seen evidence that they're looking for that conversation. And so I think there are kind of two prongs or two possible routes. One is, you know, uh, if if Alden were willing to and interested in in selling the paper, there could be a an opportunity to for the community to marshal the resources to do so and invest in it and and make it the strong paper that we want to see. The other route is to think about um, is there an alternative um, and and if there's an alternative, can we can we think about what that alternative looks like in an open, transparent, Colorado style way? Um, consult with the community, try to think about what a digital platform looks like in the future. And obviously, there are people working on that already as well. Uh, am I hearing you hint at something of a, like a nonprofit model? You know, I think um, the jury's out on what the model would be. I think um, certainly in the group that I've been talking to, there are a variety of views about whether um, sustainable long-term sustainability for local journalism involves a nonprofit model, a for-profit model, whether it involves print or only digital. And I think one of the things that certainly the group that, that I've been talking to that we think would be interesting is to kind of have a foundation-led effort in, initially to kind of think about what does the future of news look like? Because, you know, this is a thing that other communities are also experiencing, maybe not to the extent that we're watching the devastation at the Denver Post. But if we can figure out a model for the future of local journalism here, there's nothing to say that it can't work other places as well. So I, that's very exciting. I understand that you have even considered a model that looks something like the Green Bay Packers that's one of my, uh, you know, I think um, people who, who who follow professional football will know that the ownership model of the Green Bay Packers is somewhat unique and that there is a community ownership um, element to, to their ownership structure. One of the things that I've wondered is whether or not indeed uh, local newspapers could also have, you know, maybe you get shares with your subscription each month uh, and and. Over time, it becomes more of a community-owned resource, which needn't be nonprofit, which could be a for-profit business, Uh, but that is community-owned. Let's talk about your background, about the group you're a part of. You were Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and an ambassador. Now you're a DU. And uh, another of the of the members of this group as well is Engineering Dean J.B. Holston. You're joined by Henry Dubroff, a former business editor at the Denver Post, for the last 20 years, he's run a business weekly in California. With all due respect, not a lot of experience in that group running a large daily newspaper. I don't think the ambition here, for certainly uh, I, I don't think JB or I are, are planning to run the newspaper. Um, I, I think what it is, what we have in common, and, and I would say there are people from all different kind of backgrounds in the in the constellation of conversations that are going on. I think what we have in common is a deep interest in our community and that we see the Denver Post and other local media as playing a really crucial role. And I think in this moment that we're living through in national politics, there's a strong argument that 
Um, we we need to acknowledge that a lot of our fellow citizens are feeling a sense of dislocation because of uh, the the speed of change. Um, and one of the ways that you that that we have felt grounded growing up in Colorado, uh, being in Colorado, is through local media that that gives us a sense of the stories of our the people with whom we share a community. Give me a sense of the conversations you're having. Have you talked to the other groups that are assembled around the possibility of buying the post? I think there are synapses between the various groups. It's very informal at this point, uh-huh. and I think. Um, certainly, you know, uh, speaking with JB and others, there is a sense that going forward, uh, one of the things, as I said, that, that we see as promising is kind of trying to bring together a, a conver- an open conversation about what does the future of news look like here in, in Colorado. Have you talked to the governor? Uh, you know, I know that the governor and uh, and other political leaders in Colorado from both parties have uh, expressed their concern about uh, local journalism and their belief in the value of local journalism. I think there's a sense that uh, it makes sense for uh, there not to be direct political involvement by anyone of either party in kind of helping to to lead the way forward because we want a credible news source that that all Coloradans can see as something that we share. It sounds to me like this is uh, really in its infancy and that there would need to be a lot of fundraising. There needs to be just the plain question of how you proceed, what the model is. Is is time of the essence here? Do you feel the clock ticking? Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, things have been developing so quickly. You know, the, the evolution at the newsroom and the Post in the last few weeks has been dramatic with uh, Chuck Plunkett and others leaving. Uh, you know, so things are moving quickly. And I think Certainly, the folks that I'm talking to, we see this as a moment where if we can help um, marshal the energy to make uh, make an opportunity out of a crisis and get things to move quickly and try to get that conversation going in the next 90 days to come up with maybe a prototype of something that looks a little bit different than what we've had in the past and that uses the expertise of people who are doing the Colorado Independent and Denverite and Westward and, and 5280 and the, the various media properties that are already operating to try to think about what the future looks like. That could be a real contribution to helping us move fast in this moment of crisis. And then there's the question of the money. Dan, thanks. We'll have to leave it there. He's Dan Baer, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and served as U.S. Ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe under the Obama administration. He is now a diplomat in residence at the University of Denver. My God, how we will miss him. That's what the governor tweeted over the weekend following the death of Aurora's mayor, Steve Hogan. Hogan died Sunday of cancer at age 69. He'd been mayor since 2011, sat on the city council for more than two decades. I'll never forget my interview with Hogan a year after the Aurora theater shooting. We wanted to know what it was like to lead a city whose name, Aurora, had become a shorthand for a mass shooting. Turns out, changing people's perceptions of the city wasn't new for Hogan. Even had the shooting not taken place, there's a great deal of misinformation out there about Aurora and what it is. Um, We're not poor. We are a suburb of Denver. But right now, we're 340,000 people, and we're only half built out. And someday, very frankly, Aurora is going to be bigger than Denver. You you say that there was an obstacle to overcome in terms of the city's image, even without the shooting. Then you add a mass tragedy like this, and you have a, what, a, a higher hill to climb? 
I think that's a fair description. Um, certainly, even anywhere I go, I have people who still continue to express condolences. But if we only let that shooting define us as a city, we're making a huge mistake. Who's we, who's we? So the city talk, itself, the, okay. the government, the population, the whole community. We need to pick up uh, from where we were on July 19th and not only climb the the lower hill of common misperceptions, but also climb that additional hill of getting over a tragedy. Did the shooting change anything about your leadership style or how you run the city? My short answer is I am probably uh, more determined to take things on more immediately and less concerned about when is the right time because there may not be a tomorrow. Mayor, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. From the archives, a 2013 interview with Aurora's Mayor Steve Hogan. He died of cancer Sunday at age 69. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.